Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. Dr. Jennifer Daniel, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniel, and it is Tuesday, March 15th, 2016. Boy, have we got a topic for you tonight. Yes, sir, Bob. Cannibalism. State-authorized cannibalism. Are you dining at the table? Tonight, I'm going to expose the modern-day practice of killing some humans and selling these parts to other humans. This lucrative industry sells one serving of human parts for $10,000. And tonight, uh, we're going to talk about it. Of course, it's always nice to have the backstory. So I'm going to tell you how I stumbled upon this. Actually, uh, quite innocently. And this is truly the danger of an idle mind. Yes. Idle mind is one that can think about things that maybe other people don't think about. So basically, I was walking down the street. And a friend walked up to me and he said, hey, Dr. Daniels, I have a friend I want to introduce you to. She's an herbalist and uh, has a nice shop and she's a great person. I said, oh, that's awesome. And so he introduced me and I said to her, hey, you have anything for energy? I mean, people can always use more energy. Why not? She said, sure. She has these two vials. I look at them. One of them is like neon pink, like a fuchsia and bright yellow colored confetti. I said, oh, that's interesting. Otherwise, I'm liquid. So what do I do with these? He said, well, you mix them together, and then you take them. I said, well, how often do I take them? She said, well, every day. I said, oh, all right, how much do I? She said, well, $2. I said, $2. I can, I can do that. I can spring for 2 bucks. So I paid for these. I said, oh, my, look at the label. It looks really unusual. So, as always, unusual label. What do you do? Go online. Go online, get the Spanish-English translation, and what does it come down to? These are the embryos of goats, ducks, and pigs, combined, of course. I thought, wow, that's interesting. For eating the embryos of another species. And what for? Well, it's supposed to cure cancer. Of course, I have these vials still unopened. But that's what got me going. So I got to thinking, eating embryos to cure cancer. You know, Jackie O was eating 
uh, goat embryos way back when. They just reported she was eating goat embryos. I didn't, didn't click with me. I was a little kid back then. And I said, huh, that's an interesting practice. I guess that's what you do when you get money. I didn't know. But, of course, she later died of cancer. Obviously, she knew she had cancer. She was eating these embryos to try to cure her cancer. And, of course, it did not work. But fast forward to present day. So I said to myself, I wonder, could it be possible that humans are consuming the embryos of humans for disease, to cure disease, of course. What an amazing ritual that would be. So uh, at the same time, I met up with a guy who had arthritis of his shoulder. And he said, well, you know, he, he got this injection in his shoulder and the arthritis was 95% better. Just really awesome. And of course, it was a stem cell injection. He said, but now, oh, God, I got this terrible, terrible pain in my hip. I'm going to get another stem cell injection of my hip. He says, but I want the amniotic stem cells. I don't want the ones where they take my own stem cells because my stem cells are 65 years old. I said, oh, I got it. Interesting. So then that's what got me thinking. And I said to myself, wait a minute. This guy's arthritis. I, I help people with arthritis. And I certainly have 95% of a better rate. And, of course, I get them totally clear where they have no pain. But, you know, it's inconvenient. You change your diet, take some supplements, do some cleansing, sip some turpentine. And I can see why that might not be for everybody. And so the question in my mind was, geez, is stem cell transplant a shortcut for this, number one? Number two, where do these stem cells come from anyway? So I did some research. I looked into this. And I said, you know what? The gold standard, looking all over online, is amniotic. Because amniotic stem cells have the most potential to become any other cell in the body. So that's the gold standard, amniotic cells. So then I had to take a look at and see what is, what is, what is amniotic fluid? And so it's important to understand what amniotic fluid is. So amniotic fluid, as many of you know, is the fluid that surrounds the the baby or the embryo as it develops. And so the interesting thing to understand is what does this amniotic fluid do for the baby? Well, it turns out that this fluid does does a lot. Uh, the amniotic fluid is, of course, it allows the baby to move around, but it protects the baby. It protects the baby from shots, from physical trauma. It uh, protects the it allows the baby to grow, it nourishes the baby, protects them from uh, infection. And the baby swallows this amniotic fluid, and then the baby urinates into the amniotic fluid, and the baby swallows the amniotic fluid. And this is a um, cycle. 
So the amniotic fluid actually does a lot to uh, nurse the baby or uh, keep the baby alive. And so the problem occurs, the question is, what happens when you take away some of this amniotic fluid and you remove it? Because obviously, in order to get amniotic stem cells, you've got to have, well, amniotic fluid. And so my next question was, why would anyone get rid of amniotic fluid? Well, the reason why somebody would get rid of amniotic fluid is for amniocentesis, of course. Now, just to reiterate about the amniotic fluid, it contains cells that are actually alive. How do we know they're alive? We know they're alive because you can take these fluid cells, called stem cells, put them in culture, and they grow. So these are living cells. These living cells have the ability, we believe, to heal people of things like, let's just say, arthritis, for example. So it wouldn't be too big a stretch of the imagination that these same amniotic cells, that the baby's swallowing, that are circulating through his body, that he's exchanging with the amniotic fluid, are not mere waste products that the baby doesn't need, but they're actually living cells that contribute to the well-being and development of the baby. All right, so let's take a look at this thing called uh, amniocentesis. First of all, in the process of amniocentesis, more or less 20 cc's of amniotic fluid are removed from the mother. Now, more or less, at the time this is done, the baby has 200 cc's, which I don't think is particularly relevant. The point is 20 cc's is taken out. So what happens to these amniotic samples? First thing that we know happens to these samples is that genetic tests are done for diseases like uh, trisomy 18, trisomy 21. Um, and these diseases, if detected, uh, the mother is generally uh, counseled to have an abortion or she wants to have an abortion, that's why she's getting the uh, amniocentesis. So the question is then, what does this uh, create? So th these diseases that we're being, are being detected have a total frequency, cumulative frequency of about more or less two per thousand. So two per thousand of babies will have one of these defects. If these defects are detected, statistically it's been observed that mothers abort 90% of these babies when they are told, you know what, your baby has one of these imperfections. Okay, so let's do a calculation. First of all, if a woman has routine amniocentesis, what percent of those ladies are going to have an abortion? As a result, of the amniocentesis. In other words, statistically, there's a 99.98% chance that the baby lost through this 
complication was a healthy baby. So we'll just say for the sake of simplicity that these are, well, healthy babies. Okay, so the half a percent or five per thousand babies will die simply because one had amniocentesis in order to look for a defect that only occurs in two per thousand babies. doesn't stop there. What's the accuracy of amniocentesis? When we say accuracy of amniocentesis, we mean, well, of all the amniocentesis tests done, how many say no when the, when the baby is healthy and say yes is a problem when the baby has a problem? The answer is 98%. So 2% of these tests basically label healthy children as being unhealthy, causing them to be aborted. So what's 2%? That's 20 per thousand. So 20 per thousand plus 5 per thousand is 25. So 25 per thousand healthy babies will be aborted because amniocentesis was done. Just to give you some kind of marker here, infant mortality in the United States is only 6 per thousand. So by submitting to amniocentesis, a woman immediately increases her infant mortality for her healthy baby to 25 per thousand. And then you add on the 6, which is what the baby's going to face anyway. Now the baby has a 31 per thousand infant mortality because the woman submitted to amniocentesis. This infant mortality is atrocious. You literally have to be in a third world country, namely the continent of Africa or India, to have an infant mortality this bad. That is how bad it is. So what a woman is doing then by submitting to amniocentesis is creating a situation where basically it's like throwing your baby into the fire, and should he emerge on the other side, the high priest tells you, ah, this pregnancy was meant to be. And so these women are looking for reassurance that her healthy baby is healthy and that her sick baby, well, should be destroyed. And because the only problem with this is how accurate is amniocentesis? Well... (laughs) Here's a rapid test. A rapid test looks for abnormalities on specific chromosomes, and rapid tests can identify a number of chromosomal conditions that cause physical and mental abnormalities. These are Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome, and Pateau syndrome. The result of a rapid test should be ready after three working days. The test is almost 100% accurate, but only test for the three syndromes listed above. Now, almost 100% accurate, as I, I just told you, is not accurate enough because... of normal babies, at least, are going to be tagged as ready for the trash bin, probably more. And only 0.2% are actually defective. In other words, 98% of the positives are false positives. Okay. Now, this is what they do. So they take these cells and the sample of the amniotic fluid and they grow them for 10 days in a laboratory. They're then examined under a microscope to check the number of chromosomes and their appearance. The results will be ready in two or three weeks. In about one in every 100 tests, the results may not be clear. 
One in a hundred, that's one percent. The results are not clear. This could be because the mother's blood has contaminated the sample of amniotic fluid, which may have presented itself from growing properly. Now stop right there. The mother usually is genetically normal. My thing is genetically normal. She does not suffer from Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome, or Pateau syndrome. And so if the lab, by mistake, and these mistakes happen, count the mother's cell and examine that cell, then that will cause them to label a Pateau's, Edwards syndrome, or Down syndrome child as normal when the lady is actually carrying a diseased child. And this does happen. Okay, so what else happens? The sample amniotic fluid, which may be... Okay, so negative test results. In most cases, the results of amniocentesis are negative. Okay, and I told you that 98% the test is negative. This means the baby does not have any of disorders tested for. However, it is possible to have a negative test result from amniocentesis, but the baby may still be born with the condition tested for. Or they may be born with another chromosome condition that's not tested for. This is because a normal test result doesn't exclude every chromosomal disorder. Wait, 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 wait a minute. The genetic test diseases that it does test for only have a frequency of two per thousand. And so you're telling me that they can't find two per thousand with 100% accuracy? Good is the test. You'd be more accurate if you had a fortune teller who told every lady, every single lady, who told every single lady that her kid was normal. Because then you would only have a 0.2% error rate, right? The 2% error rate would be the 0.2% the of genetically abnormal kids that were not detected. But because we go through this whole laboratory testing thing, we have an error rate that's 10 times that at least 10 times that, it's 2%. And so what we have then is a system for detecting genetic abnormalities that's actually less accurate than a fortune teller who would give the same answer all the time. This is important to understand. So, as I mentioned before, infant mortality is measured in terms of deaths per thousand live births. If everyone had amniocentesis and contributed to the pool of stem cells, what would it look like? Well, 1%, half a percent to 1%. There's a quibble as to how many babies die from amniocentesis. Let's call it 1%, make the math easy. 1% times 1,000 is 10 deaths per 1,000 live births. So 10 healthy babies of women who want to have a healthy baby would die during the course of the pregnancy just because one had amniocentesis. In other words, infant mortality, if we count the deaths that happen as a result of the standard of care, amniocentesis, for the purpose of gathering stem cells, would have the same net effect as doubling infant mortality to 16 per thousand live births. This greater than doubling increase in infant mortality. So it's concealed, though, because the baby is, baby's life is ended at an earlier point in the conception to one year timeline. So infant mortality basically measures the death of infants between birth and one year of age. Because the life is ended 
during between conception and birth, it's not counted. But it's still, for a lady who wants a live birth, this is a very real number. So we're not talking about the right of a woman to have an abortion. That's such. We're talking about the right of a woman to have a healthy birth. We're talking about the, the deception of telling a woman she should have amniocentesis just because she's over 35, when the real reason might be to gather stem cells for sale in the cannibalistic but profitable ritual of injecting it into people's joints. And so one human is killed, these are the babies who are subject to amniocentesis, and these cells are put in a needle or an IV and infused into another human being. And the ingestion happens, of course, via needle. needle. This is irrelevant. One human is dead and its parts are consumed by another human. And this is basically a cannibalistic ritual. Now, why do we say that these cells come from uh, prenatal care? Well, let's just take a look at a couple of uh, sources. First, we'll take a look at, at Wikipedia. Of course, they're always pretty mainstream about stuff. What they say is that stem cells used to have uh, an ethical issue associated with them. However, the use of fetal cells has been highly controversial because the tissue is usually obtained from the fetus following induced abortion. In contrast, fetal stem cells in the amniotic fluid can be obtained through routine prenatal testing without the need for abortion or fetal biopsy. And so routine prenatal testing, this is what Wikipedia lists as the source of amniotic stem cells. And let's take a look at one of our other uh, favorite sources. And that, of course, would be uh, up. Let's see what they have to say about this. Source of stem cells, .gov, NCBI. Where do they say these stem cells come from? Okay, Journal of Prenatal Medicine. Now, they give you a great summary here, which is very nice. It says, early 1990s, small nucleated cells, which were identified as hematopoietic progenitors, in other words, these cells could give rise to red blood cells, white blood cells, were detected in the amniotic fluid. After this evidence, several other scientific novelties have brought out to the attention of the scientific community in this brief history, the human amniotic fluid cells and the last but not least evidence provided in the last five years, this was written in 2009, suggests they can also harbor a therapeutic potential for human diseases. And of course, they talk uh, about a lot of things, ethical considerations. At the same time, apart from whether an autologous application is being considered, should the amniotic fluid or the placenta be confirmed as reliable sources of amniotic like stem cells, 
the ethical objections to embryo disposal now plaguing the process of amniotic fluid-derived stem cell research could be completely avoided. And so the conclusion is that cells present in the amniotic fluid might be promising candidates for tissue engineering and stem cell therapy of several human disorders. And so it should be only a matter of time until amniotic fluid-derived stem cells will be relevant tool in the engineering and tissue engineering, gene therapy, and the research field. And so at the same time, the ethical issues could be completely avoided by using cells derived from routine prenatal screening. So here's the exact sentence. In fact, the key factor for the non-ethical problems raised by the use of amniotic fluid-derived stem cells is coming from the fact, fact that these specimens can be obtained through routine prenatal screening testing without the need for invasive fetal biopsy. So in other words, according to government websites, according to Wikipedia, these stem cells are being derived from amniotic samples obtained at routine prenatal visits and screenings. And so what does the consent form say when the lady signs the consent form for amniocentesis? Does it mention that her stem cells are going to be used for stem cell therapy? That her stem cells are going to be sold as a foundation for stem cell injection? Absolutely not. And so... Let's take another look then. Who should get stem cell therapy? I mean, amniocentesis. How does that work? Well, there's a lot of uh, criteria for who should get amniocentesis. Now, you've all heard that women over 35 should get amniocentesis. Well, they're adding to that family history of previous child with a genetic disease or metabolic disorder such as Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, or Tay-Sachs, risk of open neural tube defects such as spina bifida, or abnormal maternal screening tests such as maternal serum alpha fetal protein. This is a uh, test, which is a very broad screening test, which gives a lot of false positives, by the way. Risk of a sex-linked genetic disease. Amniocentesis can also be used in the third trimester of pregnancy to check for fetal lung maturity, when there's a potential from premature birth, uterine infection, and RH disease. So they're broadening the scope of who should receive amniocentesis. I always like it when they do research, they do these studies, and you know, they try to, to settle down as to what really um, should be uh, offered. So here's one um, opinion. Who is offered amniocentesis? Half of all women are offered amniocentesis. So amniocentesis is not carried out as routine test in pregnancy. It is offered to you if you are thought to have 
an increased chance of having a baby with a certain condition. So it's increased chance, that means 1% more than average. So that means half of our women will be offered amniocentesis. Amniocentesis is therefore often offered to pregnant women whose screening tests show a higher than average likelihood of a genetic condition. It is also offered to pregnant women who are already known to have an increased likelihood of a genetic condition. So the next question is, what is the positive predictive value uh, for amniocentesis? So if you get amniocentesis, and the amniocentesis says, hey, your kid is bad, your kid is genetically imperfect, what would be the probability that that test would be, well, true? So uh, these guys, uh, prenatal diagnosis people, actually did such a test. It's called Prenatal Diagnosis. It's named the journal done in March 2014. And this is what happened. The objective of this article is to analyze the positive predictive value of trisomies 21, 18, and 13 after referral for advanced maternal age. First trimester combined tests or ultrasound findings to suggest improvements for clinical practice. And they looked at 134,000 fetal scans that were supposed to be abnormal, 24,000 invasive prenatal tests. We'll guess that that was either um, amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. But here's, here's the, cl- the clincher. Now, I decided that there was only a 90% chance that the baby was normal when the test said the baby was abnormal. What they're saying here, the positive predictive value is 4%. It means 96% of the babies were normal. So, conclusion, advanced maternal age is still a large contributor to invasive testing but should be abandoned because of the low predictive value and the high fetal loss rate and be replaced by reimbursable combined screening for all women. Wait a minute. If screening people who are old, over 35 and pregnant, is not a good idea because it's a large contributor to invasive testing, then why should we apply testing to absolutely every pregnant woman? What we're going to do here, if we screen every single pregnant woman, is all of these screening tests, as you can see, are designed to have a large number of false positives. You're going to simply railroad more women into amniocentesis. And you're going to have a situation when they're being railroaded into killing their children. So a mother, like I said, subjects your child to a ritual that's going to kill 3% of healthy kids. And there's absolutely no gain. If her child is healthy, she's subjected to a 3% uh, death risk just in the next six months. And if her kid's not healthy, she's going to abort it. 90% 90% of the time. So for the fetus, there is zero benefit, zero benefit of getting amniocentesis. Okay, so we've established then that the process of amniocentesis is simply the first step in this cannibalistic ritual because 
the amniocentesis results in the death of 3% of all the fetuses. 3% of healthy fetuses will, be de- will die as a result of amniocentesis. So that's the kill part. Let's take a look at the consume part. And the consume part is, of course, the stem cell therapy. So the question is, good question. How effective is stem cell therapy? How effective is it really? And first of all, this industry could not exist without the practice of amniocentesis. The two go together, hand in hand. Now, there are um, individuals, almost individuals, but stem cell therapy centers that do not use stem cells and they use the person's own cells. I would just like to say, I have searched the net tirelessly hours and hours looking for evidence that amniotic stem cells are, are useful. So let me, find, let me show you what the government has to say about this. So the government says, are these, so the question is, are these stem cells effective? So they, they say, yes, they're effective in stroke. I said, oh my God, really? And you dig, 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 and you find out they did the results on rats. All right, we can dismiss that because you're not a rat. So what about stem cell therapy? for knee cartilage repair. It's a long article. It's a lot to read, a lot to slug through. Hyper, hyper technical. But as always, we can just uh, take the bottom line. Surgical treatments. So clinical evaluations prior to and after surgery, up to 16 months, using the hospital for special surgery of the knee rating scale revealed no difference between cell-treated, that's stem cell-treated, and cell-free, that means no stem cell groups. Uh, I'll repeat that. Clinical evaluations prior to and after surgery up to 16 months using the Hospital for Special Surgery Knee Rating Scale revealed no difference between the cell-treated and cell-free group. Okay. So, in other words, the patients who got stem cells and the patients who did not get stem cells showed no difference. However, arthroscopic and histological grading of the repair tissues on core biopsies performed at 7 and 42 weeks after treatment showed improved scores in the cell-treated group at both time points. Okay, so the people who got stem cells had better-looking knees under the microscope but did not have any better use of those knees. Okay, so stem cell application for... Osteoarthritis of the knee, according to the DACA website, as of 2014, this is July, I'm sorry, January 2014 when it was published, shows that not a big improvement here. All right. All right. Well, let's take a look at the Headley HEDLEY Orthopedic Institute. These people do stem cell uh, transplants, do amniotic uh, transplants. 
And how does it work? They answer that question. What benefits does stem cell therapy offer? And he says, well, you know, you've got steroids. You get naturally occurring anti-inflammatory agents. You get growth factors, no threat of patient rejection, and a highly concentrated source of stem cells. Okay, are they safe? Say, oh, heck yeah. Am I kidding? Call us. But no place do they give statistics on the site saying, hey, this is our success record. Now that is troubling. But that's okay. Not the only site. They're not the only, uh, you know, game in town. There are stem cell centers who have the balls to publish the results. Now, they don't do amniotic stem cells. So what do they show? And what's their definition of success? The definition of success for a successful transplant procedure is when the recipient says, I feel 50% better than before the stem cell transplant. Yes, sir, about That is considered improvement. Now, so with that in mind, what's the improvement rate? They had to go four years out to get a 73% improvement rate. Four years. You know, some people who have arthritis don't really have that much time. They just kind of want quicker results. And just to put this in perspective, this is like an individual, 50-something, bad knee, on a cane, joint hurts, they need relief. They go to their pregnant daughter and says, would you give up your baby's amniotic fluid and risk having losing your healthy baby so I can get 50% improvement in my knee pain? I mean, how many of you listening would actually go to your, your child and ask them to give up your grandchild just so you could have 50% improvement in a knee joint? Most people would die. That's number one. Number two, most people would look for another way. There is another way, of course. Uh, there are many other ways. But this is nothing short of cannibalism because there is a death rate. The human sacrifice rate is 3% of pregnancies, pregnancies that receive amniocentesis. And there is consumption going on. People with joint issues are being injected with these amniotic-derived stem cells. So what we have here is cannibalism. So how can we say that the state authorized? Well, we have uh, the government licensing these people. They're licensing the doctors who are doing the amniocentesis. They're paying for amniocentesis with Obamacare. Um, I think if women understood what amniocentesis really was, what the numbers were, if you have amniocentesis, there's a 3% chance that your healthy baby will die, either because of a complication of the procedure or because you are erroneously told that this kid has a genetic defect when there's nothing wrong with them. And for most women, you confront them with 3% chance that your healthy baby's going to die or a point. 2% chance that there might be a genetic problem. 
And I think the discussion of amniocentesis, this is, this is not the discussion that, is, that takes place. The idea that you have a 15-fold greater chance of killing a healthy baby than you do of detecting an unhealthy baby. Most women would say, I would rather protect my healthy baby. And again, many of these unhealthy babies, these genetically defective ones, once they're born, they're going to die soon anyway, number one. But number two, many of them die in utero before they're even born. So what is amniocentesis, you know, preventing really? When you see that these genetic defects that they uh, detect, Patel syndrome, for example, affects one in 9,500 live births. 64% of these babies, these genetically defective babies, are going to miscarry on their own. And then of those born, 90% are going to die before age one. This kid is not going to be a huge burden. This kid's only going to live one year. When you take a look at what does it mean to be a mother, what it means to be a mother is to simply allow this life to come into the earth, the world, and do the best you can to make the child's life as pleasant as possible. So it makes no sense. It makes no sense to have amniocentesis to detect detect this syndrome when 64% are going to miscarry and 90% are going to die before the age of one. So what is this lady avoiding? Because 64% are going to miscarry, and so she wants to have a doctor help her miscarry the other 36%. You know, the the value of intervention is greatly um, diminished. Now, in the case of Down syndrome, uh, the issue with Down syndrome is that um, these children are actually um, going to live. This is not a deadly um, genetic issue. Personally, I come from a family of six children, two of whom were mentally retarded. And growing up in a family with two mentally retarded children was actually um, not bad. They were pretty pleasant, easy to get along with, and uh, we were all great friends. So, you know, I don't get it. And, of course, I learned a lesson of being very compassionate, of being very patient with people who uh, weren't like me or didn't have the same skill that I had. And I also learned to appreciate them because they did things I didn't do. Like they were incredibly um, even-tempered and good-natured. I really admired that. So... You know, you have to ask yourself, what is it you're really sparing this lady? And in our family, I didn't see where there was any additional um, dollar expense associated with my two mentally retarded sisters. And let's see, they're, they're 64 years old now. They've lived a long and healthy life and they're still living. So the presumption then that you want to avoid a mentally retarded child, you know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure how valid that presumption is. Number one, and again, number two, once you find a genetic defect, 
these ladies are put under incredible pressure to uh, to abort. But the issue then, though, is these if these illnesses that are being detected are illnesses where really there's not a lot of intervention needed. I mean, if you're going to say, okay, all right, if a woman has a genetically uh, imperfect child and she wants to end this child's life, how can you say it's okay for to end the child's life at 25 weeks gestation, but it's not okay to drop the kid in a chloroform bucket once he's born? Now, that sounds pretty drastic to people. Well, what do you mean just kill babies that are not perfect? Well, what do you mean killing 90% of those who, who are perfect? Just to make sure you kill the one before they die. So in other words, if you let all these pregnancies get born, you don't detect any genetic problems. And as soon as the baby's born, you drop them in a chloroform bucket or whatever humane um, life termination process you are in favor of, you're going to save the lives. Every one kid that you kill after birth, you're going to save the lives of at least nine children who are now being nine healthy children who are now being aborted due to inaccurate laboratory results. So I think if people are in favor of destroying the lives of genetically imperfect children, as a society, we're obligated to find another way of doing it that does not entail destroying nine healthy children for each genetically imperfect one that's destroyed. Now, of course, the more magnanimous approach would be to let all the children be born and let each child live as long or as short as nature would allow. But instead, what we have is we have this convoluted system where women are being deceived into sacrificing their children, endangering the lives of their healthy children in relatively large numbers. It's 30 per thousand. Again, it's just, this is a number of endangerment and death, which rivals that of third world countries. In order, in their mind, to give themselves reassurance their child is healthy, when actually it's really just killing their healthy children, to provide substrate amniotic fluid for a burgeoning, on the verge of exploding, stem cell transplant industry. Can you imagine giving a stem cell transplant infusion to everyone who has a stroke? A lot of amniotic fluid is going to be needed. You bet your baby on that. And what's going to have to happen is, and watch this prediction, they're going to have to mandate that every woman get amniocentesis during her pregnancy to screen for genetically imperfect children. Now, the excuse women are going to get is, well, you don't want to have a retard, do you? Well, you don't want to have a kid with all these disabilities that you have to be burdened with caring for. What actually the real reason is the amniotic fluid is needed for the ritualistic cannibalism that our society has decided to practice and endorse and authorize and even finance. And that is really the, the whole of it. Let's take a look, though, at the definition of cannibalism. Just make sure that we're, we're on track here, that we're not, you know, just flying off the handle, getting overly worked up about this. So cannibalism 
This is the medical definition of cannibalism. The usually ritualistic eating of human flesh by a human being. All right, that might be a bit of a stretch. Let's take a look at this one. The eating of the flesh or the eggs of any animal by its own kind. Now, eggs. Here we go. So we're talking about that is a fetus floating in amniotic fluid, shedding these living cells, these living cells that it actually needs. And let's see if this amniocentesis fits the definition of ritualistic. So what's ritualistic? Ceremonial. Yeah, definitely a ceremony. Conventional. Yeah, definitely conventional. Standard of care. Established. Yep, it's been doing it a long time. Formal. Approved. Confirmed. Conventional. Directed. Lawful. Legal. Methodical. Official. Precise. Somebody prescribed by the doctor. Pro forma. Proper. Regular. I mean, it's a ritual. There is no question. Now, I want you to notice that healthy, beneficial, effective, and therapeutic are not on the list. And so amniocentesis is not healthy. It is not beneficial, not to the mother and not to the baby. It's not effective. The uh, positive predictive value um, by any measure is less than 10%. Instantly, it's not therapeutic. So what we have here is clearly very straightforward a cannibalistic ritual. What is the answer? What, pray tell, could be the answer? I know, you know, out there says, oh my God, Dr. Downs, this is awful, there ought to be a law. No, 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 there just doesn't need to be a law. There's too many laws already. That is not what's needed. What is needed is for women who are pregnant to be aware that they are simply on one end of this cannibalistic relationship and for them to say, no, thank you. That's it. No, thank you. That's one end of it. And always, of course, there is the other end. And the other end is people who have arthritis, who have aches and pains, who think that they might need a quick answer. There is no quick fix. Okay? No quick fix. Put it out of your mind. What can you do? What can you do? You're in a wheelchair because you're aches and pains. How do you get out of this wheelchair? I can tell you, and this is a shameless plug, but several people have written me and said, I am no longer in my wheelchair because I took Vitality Hample. I'm telling you. All they did was clean out the crud in their system, and they were able to get out of their wheelchair and walk without assistance, not even a cane. Get up and walk. Can you believe that? Now, not everybody is so... Well, first of all, how long does it take? It takes about three months. But not everyone is so lucky. Some people have to do more than that. Yes, they've got to take your vitality capsules, change your diet, take a little bit of turpentine, and maybe even do other cleansing things, such as a juice fast or a water fast. So stem cell therapy, according to, again, everything I've read, is not even as effective as that. And for that, people are being asked to engage in a cannibalistic ritual that results in the destruction of their own grandchildren? I think it's pretty poor. A poor trade-off. Absolutely poor exchange. People are being asked to make an exchange that is uh, it's unreasonable. Even if you believe in cannibalism, and even if you believe that it's okay. 
And again, I'm not questioning a woman's right to an abortion. What I am questioning and supporting is a woman's right to have a healthy baby. So if a woman is pregnant and decides to continue her pregnancy, doesn't she have the right to do that? Doesn't she have the right to continue her pregnancy without subjecting her healthy baby to a 3% death rate? I think so. Well, we have about eight minutes left and time for a couple questions. Excuse me, there ought to be a few. We take a look at the um, chat room here. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniel, I graduated high school in the year of Roe v. Wade and watched firsthand the language transformation and dehumanizing of human infants. It's somehow no longer a baby when they call it a glob of tissue and embryo. What do you think is the importance of this? I think the importance of this is it allowed people to not call it killing, which it is. So it doesn't matter whether it's legal or not. That that I don't I, I don't take a position on that. But at least you should call it killing. And so what you're saying is it is legal for a woman to kill her own baby to end that baby's life should she so choose at a certain time under certain circumstances. But you need to call it what it is. Why? Because when you don't call it what it is, it doesn't allow you to revisit it and to revise it. Even worse, it doesn't allow you to understand what's going on. So by dehumanizing the fetus, it makes these women numb and unable, just because of the languaging, to understand that amniocentesis is simply a way to kill 3% of all babies. Now, there's another thing here that's going on. You ask, well, how can 880,000 Americans every year die at the hands of the medical industrial complex? Submit people to interventions that kill only 1%, 2%, or 3%. And of course, in a person's life, they will submit routinely to maybe 30, 40, 50 of these such events. And that's it. There you have it. 40% of Americans die as a result of medical therapy just because they agree to submit to a therapy that has a death rate attached to it, somewhere in the area of 1%. And when I was in uh, a medical practice, there were drugs explicitly in the package insert. This drug kills 1 in 10,000 people who take it. This drug kills 1 in 1,000 people who take it. And I had a policy. I would not prescribe any drug that kills more than 1 in 5,000 people. I wasn't going to do it. Even those drugs, I wouldn't let anyone take them for very long. So people's willingness to not call killing killing allows them to submit to their very own killing. In this case, what happens is because women aren't using the word killing, which is it's all killing, whether you end the pregnancy at two days gestation or 10 months gestation, if you don't call it killing all the way each and every day, you can't recognize it. You can't even call it when your doctor kills your baby during prenatal care. You don't understand that your baby was killed from chorionic villa sampling, which has uh, at least a 1% uh, fetal or abortion rate associated with it. So if you use the same languaging for all of it, 
at least you can detect it when someone else is doing it to you. All right, we have a question here. Hi, you're on the air. What's your question? Hello. Yes, my Hi. sister. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, thank you. My sister's just been diagnosed with an eye condition. Um, she, it, mm-hmm. she has a macular hole in her retina and mm-hmm. also has cataracts in both eyes. The doctor says they're dense. Is there any mm-hmm. um, natural therapy that she can use to remedy them? Well, first of all, I have to take a look at what the cause is. Now, uh, any good doctor will tell you it's all genetic. However, um, it's basically something she's eating, there's impurities in her blood, and her eyes are acting like a blood filter in replace of her, her liver. So you've got to somehow um, get her cleaned out where, you know, she's eating cleaner food, not putting in toxins. She's got to get all the processed stuff out of her diet. She's got to start having more bowel movements and peeing more. So these um, materials will gather in the toilet instead of in her eyeballs. That's basically what her problem okay. is. Yeah. You don't drink water. You don't drink water. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, there's not uh, not a short answer. It's not like you, you know, take this eye drop or that eye drop. Well, you can put castor oil in the eye to help loosen up the toxins, but they're not going anywhere unless and until you open up the bottom end and put in um, some real food. Uh, not plastic. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Abortion. So, Dr. Daniels, is an upcoming presidential election and abortion is resurfacing as an issue. What would you say to people who are pro or against abortion? People who are against abortion, I would say to them, they need to put their efforts into the 25% uh, baby killing rate that women who decide to continue their babies are subjected to. Um, So that's women who are against abortion. I think the issue with prenatal care and the babies that are being killed is, is just astronomical really put your effort there. Um, to people who are pro-abortion, I would say there's a real problem with having the government legislate this either way. Because what you're really establishing is the right of the government to tell you if you can and cannot have a baby. And when you give that to the government, they can turn around and compel you to have an abortion. So um, to either side, I would say the question before them is, is the wrong question. It's not the real question. They're both being tricked into taking the position that the government has the right to compel abortions and to deny abortions. And that is the true danger, and both sides have ignored that. Okay, so we have come to the end of the show, and uh, I'd like to say thank you for your attention, and we'll see you again next week. As always, think happens, and don't be a cannibal.